Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport is the account of a human rights battle with global repercussions for the world of sports. It's a challenge to rethink fixed ideas about gender and it's the extraordinary story of a boy who was rejected for who he wasn't and fought back until she found out who she was. It's written by my guest today, Kristen Worley. Nice to see you. Oh, Richard, it's such an honor to be with here with you today. And congratulations on the book. Two and a half years to write this book. It was a long haul. Um, it was it was a real, that in itself was a journey. I had the great pleasure and to, to meet the wonderful Johanna Schneller mm-hmm. um, here in Toronto, and, and um, we connected right away. And um, just, a, just a great personality, a great, and um, just... Somebody who who um, really embraced the opportunity, understood the story, um, and as you know, taking on a, a story of, and writing this long for two and a half years, it's it's a real journey that um, we took together, and and she really helped me to kind of go through my journey from a young child um, to tell the story as it needed to be told right through to the uh, the legal piece um, in my sports world. And it's interesting to me. It's a memoir and. I often wonder, when you're working with someone, you know the story. You lived the story. You were there for it all. Uh, Johanna came in as your co-writer. Did she make you look at things a little differently or ask you questions that maybe opened up venues of thought that you hadn't considered before? Ab- absolutely. I, I think I think the first part of the story, for her, it was her, her own journey. And mm-hmm. I think um, for her... Because anybody that would come into this discussion, having not lived the experience, again, right. like anyone's experience, um, you know, you have preconceived notions, and and so um, she had to kind of kind of expel those from um, from those kind of social norms of what she th- mm-hmm. had assumed the story was about, or right. what I what my journey was going to be about, and and then being able then to turn that uh, turn that inside out and kind of then reflect what it was actually really about and being able to tell it from my perspective um, and, and the challenges that I was having uh, throughout my childhood and into my adulthood. And um, I think it became very personal for her um, and she learned a lot, probably a lot about herself. And, yeah, yeah. and, and I, think, I think that in itself helped, really helped to really help with the narration of the book um, because it, it did become so uh, personal and, and personal for both of us. And I think... Along with that, she enabled me for many things that I had um, kind of pushed away for many, many years. Because when you go through a, a transition, um, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more later, but the the issue is for me, I'm, you know, a lot of those things she had to she had to get it back out of me. So it was right. back in the back of my brain. You had pushed it back and and right. put it in a place where you didn't have to think about it because it was right. less painful. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's funny you use the word personal. A few times there, personal story, personal for her as for, as well as for you. My first radio boss said to me, "People only want to hear about people. They want to hear people's stories, and that's what makes books like yours." And the book is called "Woman Enough: How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport." Is uh, uh, it, it, it to be effective? It has to cut no corners. Right. You have to expose the truth and tell your real story. Otherwise. It's a fluff piece, and the story is too important for it to be a fluff piece, and I'm sure you feel that way. Absolutely, and I, and I think for me, I, 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 what I've learned through this journey is I've, I've learned to become authentic, and right. and, and, um, and it took me half my life to get there yes. and, and to find that authenticity in every aspect of my life. And so um, 
and you, once I've gotten to that point, you, you don't you want to go back to not yeah, being authentic. That's and, right. And you struggle to kind of push that back in, in terms of where you, you don't want to be and where kind of the society wants to put you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a constant struggle to say, no, I can't go back to that because that's where society wants me to be. I'm, I'm on the other side of the fence now and part of that journey. So, yeah, it, it, in terms of the, the, the process of which we went through in the design of the book, um, it took on many different um, processes to be actually be able to kind of find a, a definitive point where, we, where she and I were able to kind of find that interaction and, and draw out the key points of the different things that occurred chronologically through my life that I think we what was really key for us is it was to find a, a message that would be consistent with other people's life's experiences. Mm-hmm. Even though my my journey was through the journey in the prism of, of gender, um, a lot of the book is really talking about the, the issues of somebody who's trying to find their identity and, right. and, and moving through and developing through their life, through their life, and feeling like an outsider in a world where you think. Uh, I, I always find it interesting <laughs> to talk about uh, people who feel like perhaps they're on the wrong side of something, because there's more people uh, outside the circle than there are in the circle. But when you feel like an outsider, you can often feel very alone. Absolutely, yes. And I think that's sort of the maybe one of the universal themes developed in this book. And I, I agree with you. And I think, and, and I think for me, I, I mean, I talk a lot about that. And I, in terms of what Johanna and I came up with thematically, was this idea of the triangle. Mm-hmm. And it, it, in terms of me growing up in Canada and in a middle class family, having tremendous opportunities before me, um, whereas you know. Uh, where I couldn't have been more alone uh, under that. And then when I fell out of that triangle, what happens and what can happen and and how you become, um, you know, it becomes a very scary world um, because the rest, you you no longer fit in that box and you're pushed away. And so in in, in complete parallel to that, it's very much how the sporting industry uh, treated me as well. So it very it works on those same mechanisms. I'm speaking with uh, Kristen Worley. The book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. Let's go back to the beginning then. We've talked about some themes. Let's go back. So uh, you were adopted by, you were born a boy, mm-hmm. adopted by a conservative family, mm-hmm. uh, and you felt ill at ease. And they were well-to-do. I mean, you had I would imagine advantages, right? Absolutely, and I—I I mean, it even goes back. My story even goes back as far as you know. I was—I was conceived in New Zealand by a young a New Zealand girl in a small town in Timaru, um, which is one of the most southern uh, east coast ports of the South Island of New Zealand. So I couldn't have been more further away yeah, yeah. <laughs> from, That's from right. Canada. Literally on the other side of the world. Well, yeah, very yeah, much yeah. so. Yeah. And, and this young woman came pregnant with me to Canada. Uh, and it, I mean, my journey started then. Um, it was even before my adoption in Toronto. I mean, mm-hmm. my, the choices my my mother uh, test made um, back in New Zealand, back in those days, um, were, were challenging choices for her to have to make it at the age of 24. Yeah. A, a young farm girl, um, conservative Catholic family. Um, in a small country. In a small yes. town, in a very small town. I was just there last year with her, for, visiting her for a month. Wow. And in the small town of Timaru, and it's still very small. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, and it, as wonderful it is, but you realized, you know, 50 years ago, there was nothing. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, and, and the resources that she would have had at the time were, were nothing. So um, other than her sister, her, her younger sister and the support of her brother-in-law at the time, um, were the only ones that knew of my birth. So 
Um, off she came to Canada. Um, at that time, they didn't fly by air to come to tr- across the ocean. Wow. They, they came by boat up through the, the Panama Canal, up yeah. through New York to Toronto. So the choices she made for me at the very beginning kind of kind of started the, started the journey to where then I was then um, adopted into uh, the, the Canadian family here in Toronto by her physician. And what do you know about Tess? I mean, you just spent a month with her. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, your birth mom. Oh, it's... Um, it's, it was an interesting journey. I, I can tell you, I've, I've got two half sisters, um, obviously born of a different father. Mm-hmm. My mom went back to New Zealand, uh, two and a half years after I was, uh, almost three years after I was born here in, in Toronto and adopted. And, um, my mom remarried years later and had two sisters, um, which, which are now my two sisters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, um, because I get this from my first cousins and my, and my family in New Zealand when they see me, I'm most like my mom. Oh yeah. If you, I'm, I'm a, my mom is, I'm, uh, my mom is a mini version of me, which is kind of, we always kind of laugh at each other and we look at each other. She goes, she, she always goes to me, you poor soul, uh, but she's, she's, uh, she's, she's lovely. She's 78 years old, yeah. 78 years old now and, and living in, 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 uh, um, in the South Island retired. And, um, you know, the, it was, it was great for me to go back last year, um, after my court case was finished here in Toronto mm-hmm. and spend that time with her. Cause I got to see my family. Um, and, and then I spent time with my sisters, um, my nephew and nieces, um, who I'd never met before. Um, and then spend t- almost three weeks with my mom traveling around the South Island. And I, 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 there was a moment when we we're driving down from Christchurch down to Timaru along the East coast. And I looked over to my mom with the, the, the the the, south, the southern alps in the background and the ocean on the on, on to my left and as you know when you're driving it's all right hand drive in, right, in, in right. new zealand and i looked at my mom and i said mom did you ever think like we're in this little hatchback well uh, and we're going uncle mom did you ever think you and i would ever be doing this yeah you know it, it's purely magical it, as simple as it was you know here i am with my my mom come complete circle on this journey i've been through this big piece of with, within the sporting system but it started right there. Like, yeah. And she took me back to the place where I got to see my family farm. I got to see you know, my, the, the family town and where my mom grew up. Right. And then it was wonderful because I had a chance to go down to Dunedin where my mom's sister and her husband were, who, who were the ones who knew of my birth. Right. And uh, it was interesting. I, went, I was going through the family photos and, f- and that they all brought out for me one evening after... A, a, a ball of wine or so. <laughs> we were sharing as a family kind of celebration. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting to me because all my life, I had never seen photos of my family. I, hadn't, I didn't have that connected relationship with right. family. So all of a sudden, my, my aunt pulled out all these photo albums dating back to the mid-1800s, showing the, the first immigration of our family from Europe into New Zealand. And I could see myself through the entire family line. And, you know, at that time, they had 12, 14 children. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite, it was quite uh, interesting to see those photos. But there was one moment in the discussion that we had, which I, I must share with you, is that we were flipping through the, the photo albums. And all of a sudden, there was this baby picture that showed up in the middle of a black and white photo. And I looked at it, and, they, and it, was, it was a baby photo of myself. Wow. I'd never seen You'd a never baby. You'd never seen one. Yeah. I'd never seen a baby photo of myself. And it was interesting because my oldest, uh, my cousin, um, my, my aunt's, uh, my um, oldest daughter, um, had said we grew up always um, being told that this, this child was a friend of the families. 
And Krista, we'll leave the story there and we'll pick it up on the other side of the commercial. You stay put for a sec. We're talking with Kristen Worley. This is a fascinating story. The book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. In studio, I'm thrilled to have Kristen Worley. The book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport, uh, co-written with Johanna Schneller. We've talked about Johanna. We're talking now about your recent visit with your birth mother. Uh, had you met her before? I, we had met. She'd come to Canada years before that. Right. And um, we we had a slight separation for a period of time because at that time I was – I. I was in my my mid twenties, right? And it, I, you can't really prepare yourself um, when you when you meet um, when you meet a family member like this. And in, in this particular situation, did you feel like you had been abandoned, or was there <laughs> something like that that came welling up? Or um, no, what it, the my mom and I, the, our likeness was so strong, right? And that um, it was uncanny, right? So 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 I was seeing myself. In, in my mother um, that I had never seen before. Right. And, and I, I guess I, in, in, as an adopted child, and I, I think a lot of adopted adoptees, um, you know, we, we try to, you know, we're very fortunate to be in, in family, supportive families. But as when, when adoptive parents back in those days would take, they were told, take the child home and, and love them as your own. Right, right. But there is a genetic component. There is there is a, an, an underlying communication that goes on within genetic relations within the families, and I always felt like I was an outsider in that in that in that family. Let alone the issues I was having with my my the gender issues, mm-hmm. my diversity issues. Um, that um, when I met my mom, it was just it was just it it, it, it was. In a sense, surreal because growing up as a child, I was always told like a fairy tale that there was this. I was I was born by. Um, Conceived by a, a woman from Australia. Yeah, not listening from not Australia. even the not even the right place, but close. You, you know, yeah. and and uh. your and your father was a chief engineer in the merchant navy, and it was kind of like a love story. Right. So all those all those things that you thought as a as a fairy tale love story kind of thing growing up, all of a sudden, she's walking through the entranceway at the international at levels at, at Terminal Three. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, all that comes crashing down at once because there's reality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the story you've created in your head suddenly has a face and a body and everything else, a it's, personality and a connection that, yeah. Yeah. And, and mom, mom, she's just like four foot ten and, <laughs> and, 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 and with a Kiwi accent. Yeah, yeah. And this, and this is the woman who, who took on those challenges and gave me the life that I've had and where it all started. And so there are so many emotions in how to how to fix that. But also the other thing that you struggle with, especially when I was in my 20s, is that uh, we, we still don't know how to deal with adoption or then anyway, right. how to deal with adoption in terms of meeting birth parents mm. and, and, and then being able to have that where that fits kind of in our sociological and family models. Um, because at, at one point it was seen as being pushed out as an outsider and right. that I was taking I was hurting my family, whereas it's something I needed to do to kind of find that connected relationship. Right. It's hard to explain to a family members when they've never had to feel it or experience that. And, and so um, it was important for me to have this, to make this connection. And unfortunately for me, it's worked out because a lot of times for a lot of adopted a lot of adoptees, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it, it has worked out in this instance. So you were there recently in, right. in New Zealand. And when we left 
in the last segment, uh, I had to, to interrupt you to, to get to a commercial. Uh, you were flipping through some photo albums and you saw a black and white photograph of a baby and it turned out to be you. And you had never seen one before. That's right. Yeah, I'd never seen a baby photo of myself. And so, uh, it, and that's what was fascinating to me um, that, as, as my family said, you were never forgotten. Mm. It was, but it, as the treatment of it, though, as my, my older cousin had said, as um, within my cousins and my sisters, they only, the story was that this was a family, this was a, a friend of the family's baby. Right. But, yeah, the, yeah. but the, my, the neighbor's baby or whatever. But, yeah, but yeah. my cousins always kind of question, well, why would we have a baby photo <laughs> of somebody's baby in our photo album? So, so, so it all became, it's all come full circle. So, but um, it, it's been, it, 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 it created that connect, that connectivity. Yeah. And, um, I, and I, I'm just thinking of, of just one other thought, just as I'm speaking with you. There was one moment um, in the town of Dunedin, it's a little small city of Dunedin. It's in a, in a valley at the very bottom end of the South Island of New Zealand. And there was a moment, um, my Uncle Terry, uh, Terry Dewar, he was, uh, he was quite a character. Um, uh, he's now a retired businessman. Um, he actually was a, a captain on the same ship as my, as my birth father. Right. So they were, they, were, they were sailing mates right. fr- from Europe. And so that's how they came to know my aunt, my, came to know my aunt and then my, my mom connected with my father. But the interesting thing was is that there was, um, as you know, football is a big in terms yeah, of rugby yeah, yeah. is a big, a big thing. Um, Maybe the biggest thing, yeah. In in in, <laughs> in New Zealand, and, and so uh, yeah, with the with the uh, the All Blacks, and so it was funny. Terry ter- has a way of himself sometimes putting up uh, other teams' flags um, up on their flagpole just to get the local community going. <laughs> and I, I remember one moment I must share with you. I, I remember coming out of the shower one morning, and, and I was, it was, it was, and I was looking, I was getting dressed, and I was looking out the window, and I watched him walk out, and he had this flag underneath his arm. Also, he put it up on the flag, and it was a Canadian flag. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. So I said, "Wow," you know, it just making that connection. Yeah. You know, and and um, yeah, I, I I think out of this process in terms of my adoption, I just feel so blessed to be able to. And I was just saying to my mom and my aunts just the other day uh, with the release of the book as well, to be able to come full circle and be able to share the story with a lo- with with readers and and people who would share these similar experiences. Um, I just feel so lucky, and and to be able to share this moment with my mom in particular, because I, I just like driving down the South Island um, last year, never thought I would ever dream of that moment. Yeah. Because I, growing up as a kid, I always just had that connection. I mean, I didn't have that connection, and never thought that I'd ever let alone meet her and have that opportunity. And now I'm now towards the end of her life, I'm able to share these moments with her. I'm speaking with Kristen Worley. The book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. We just have about a minute left. And so we'll, we'll flash forward a little bit. And you grew up in Toronto. You felt ill at ease. Is that, uh, that, that's probably too mild a term. Mm. But you felt ill at ease in your own skin. And give me in, and it's impossible, what I'm yeah. asking you to do. In 30 seconds, let's start the story here. So how did you feel when you're, when did you start as a young person feeling ill at ease with yourself? Oh, uh, uh, three and four, five really? years, years of age. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, because I mean, that's when, um, I, I know with my nephew and nieces, um, who are now in their early teens, it was interesting from the worldly standpoint when we were, when we were watching my nephew Hartley and, and Madison in that, in those early stages, you know, you, you watch typically they're running at one and two years old, they're running around half naked and the washroom doors are still open and so on. But it's interesting as they, two, two and a half, three years old, all those things start to change. They start to become more, uh, you know, 
aware aware of their bodies yeah. and also what society's teaching them that they're even at that age um, that you know putting your clothes on when, and closing the washroom doors and all those other things started to happen so these are taught things that were taught and you know and 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 for me even at three and four years of age I was dealing with those issues not knowing why why they were happening Hold that thought, and we'll come back after the break. I'm speaking with Kristen Worley. The book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sports. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kristen Worley is a former world-class cyclist, probably still a world-class cyclist, uh, and now an international inclusivity and diversity advisor, educator, and public speaker. Her new book is called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. So when we left, we were talking about when you were three and four years of age, you started to feel uncomfortable with yourself. And so describe to me. It's, 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 it's interesting that in terms of, it's hard to put it into a social context when we, I know it's when you, we've, you hear a lot of these discussions about the, the, the ideas of feeling uncomfortable with yourself. Mm-hmm. I think what, what and that's I, probably not the right word to use, but no, it's totally fine. I think, yeah. I think that's actually the right word to mm-hmm. use because I think in, in terms of, I think that's what we're talking about, these kind of social constructs. And I think what happens even at that age, it, I think this speaks to a lot of the issues that we deal uh, separate of the gender issues mm-hmm. that we're ta- things that were taught at a very young age in terms of behavior and I think also in, in the context of male and female um, and really that there there should be more interlacing right. on how we learn about these various things in our society, let alone culture and the various diversities and, and so on um, that we're, that our societies are facing today. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just one of them. And, and I think for me, um, that was for me as a child, I, even then I, I knew that as a boy, I was always being kind of projected down that down that direction, and then there, as my sister was projected down another direction, right? right? And that's typical of parenting, and, and you know it's carried on through generations. But the issue is, um, back in my day, there wasn't. I feel so old. <laughs> God, back in my day, um, oh, it's funny to say these things. First time gone. Um, but the they didn't talk about these things. Yep. So, and, 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 and we don't do it well now. Yeah. So the issue is, it, we didn't even have any language around it, but I knew enough then to know that something was different. I didn't know what it was. I knew I was a creative kid. I knew I was, I was an emotional kid. I didn't know how these things were inter, intertwined or interlaced and how, how who, and who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for a while, thought as a young kid, because I would have to, um, I would have to, um, kind of helped to try to identify with these issues. But in terms of my, the issues I was challenged with is that I was in a more conservative Canadian family, you know, um, who really, I lived in an environment in Toronto, which, you know, um, we didn't have a lot of cultural diversity, right. let alone in my schooling, um, particularly in those days. Um, and it, the issue is, so I didn't have a lot of experience with it, and neither did my family. So the issue is, is that I had no place to go. So there was that sense of desperation, mm. but still, even as a young child, I didn't know what it was. I just knew the behaviors that I had to man- try to manage it. And, the, and going back to your comment earlier is that the discomfort was trying to fit into the box and that constant fight to say, I can't do this. I can't 
behave like this because if I do, I'm going to get in trouble. Right. You know, or I'm going to get looked upon as being bad. I'm letting down my family. It got, like, as I got older, it was like, I'm going to let down my family. Is my family going to think that I, it's, I'm, I'm gay or, or, or all these things? And there's nothing wrong, obviously, yeah. being gay. It's, it's just that in, in those days, we just didn't talk about gender or sexuality right. in, in any form. And I was afraid of losing my family. I was afraid of doing harm to my family and to those around me. And then, and then um, those, those, those became more greater struggles as I got older. And where did sports enter into all of this? The, the sport, I was one of those kids, and I don't know if, if you remember the days when we used to have um, participation. Oh, yeah. We yeah, used yeah. to have the- You got badges. Right, right. Yeah. That exactly was it. And I remember, I remember going through public school because I was the I was the kid. I always used to get bullied, and I, those are the days when I had I, you could actually walk to school, yeah. and and I'd walk and you'd do it three times a day, yeah. and I'd walk a kilometer and a half back and forth to school, and I always have the bullies waiting for me at the between the park and the entrance way into my school, you know, waiting to sit there and beat me up, yeah. you know, and and and. and I would never want to tell my, my parents, or when I did tell my parents, I'd end up in the, ironically, in the principal's office, and then it just becomes a circle of yep. more abuse, because they just didn't know how to manage it back in those days. And so, um, sport, you know, at that time for me, and those coming out to the participation, I was one of the kids who got, you know, I didn't even get the bronze medallion. I got, I got the, I got the, you know, the ribbon, th- thanks for coming the, the out. Thanks for coming out, Ribbon. I think yeah. I probably got that yeah, yeah. too. So, <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So it wasn't until it wasn't until grade seven when I actually it was the early days of Nike. And I and I and I remember when they you, you may recall that the, the yellow waffle Nike shoe with the blue switch. Yeah. 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 And I went, those are really cool. <laughs> so I, I came more attracted to the shoe That's than, right. than anything else. And, and I started doing running and then I learned that I could run fairly quickly. And then, and then all of a sudden, I realized I was able to set school records, and it's something, it's something I never thought of because I had such a challenge doing sport. So running became that kind of identity piece for me um, early on because all of a sudden, for my friends, they would identify me as Kristen, the runner who could set school records, yeah. rather than the kid who was diverse and uh, uh, the kid who was getting beaten up every day right. on his way into school. Right. So it would create that layer for me of protection. So that's how I got into sport first. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kristen Worley. The book is called woman enough, how a boy became a woman and changed the world of sport. Uh, and then you became an elite athlete. I mean, you became uh, someone who was faster and better than everybody else. Were you driven by a sense of proving yourself in a way? Probably. Yeah. There's there's probably a proportion of that. And I think I think also from the standpoint of the bullying that I received, I received it stopped after that. Yeah. So so the and then I had a, I had challenges in my own family and in the and the my 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 father was a was a strong businessman, um and a kind of a, a, uh, a strong voice in our family. Um, and a lot of our communications was through sport. Um, we didn't communicate a, a lot about a lot of these things. So our, our family was a skiing, sailing family, um, and then I went horizontal to that and chose water skiing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I think also it was kind of a reflection too. Um, I, I wanted to get away from my father's drive, yeah. and, and 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 alienate myself from that. And and so when I chose the sport of water skiing, I became very successful. Um, to where by the time I was in grade eleven, grade twelve, I was on the national team. 
um, and then I had the opportunity to compete for the World Championships for Canada. So I spent a lot of my times down in the deep south of central Florida around Cypress Gardens, um, skiing with some of the very best skiers in the world. And, and uh, a very good friend of mine by the name of Ron Scarpa, a five, five-time world champion, um, became a big brother to me mm. and, um, and a dear friend even still today. Um, and 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 I'm I'm very grateful for him because he he kind of gave me that foundation and that place to run to, um, because being at home wasn't a great place for me. So when I was away from home, I could deal with a lot more of my diversity issues, um, and being more be more Kristen than Chris right. per se, um, even at that time, to to manage those distresses that I was having. So, when did cycling become the thing? Cycling became your focus. Yeah, cycling became my focus. Um, it was an interesting time because I, at the time I was I was I was competing in my water skiing and, and I decided I, I I always dreamed about going to the Olympic Games right. and and water skiing I'd already keep going to the World Championships and the issue was for me it was that I, I, I water skiing it is an Olympic affiliated sport and um, by the way I just want to give a shout out to Jarrett Llewellyn probably <laughs> the most winningest Canadian athlete in history right. um, is, a, is a, uh, from Alberta yeah, yeah. Um, and most Canadians don't know it um, multi world champion and so on and so but we've done Canada's here we are a winter country we, yeah. water skiing is um, one of our bigger sports successful right. sports internationally it's because um, we embrace that one month of summer we get <laughs> when you <laughs> exactly. can go water skiing exactly <laughs> so um, so anyway to make a to going back to that, I, I t- went on to cycling um, because I wanted to get into. I wanted to go to the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. That was my goal, and so I and I wouldn't have been able to achieve that through water skiing. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion with Kristen Worley. The book is called "Woman Enough: How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport," and we're going to find out about a, a couple of major life changes. How you went from being Chris to being Kristen and what that decision meant to you and then how you changed the world of sport because this is a fascinating story and it's not one uh, that happened quickly. This is a story that 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 took uh, some effort and took some time for you and it's I, I can't wait to hear uh, you tell the story. So stay with us. We're with Kristen Worley, Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. Welcome back. My guest in studio is Kristen Worley, a former world-class cyclist and now international inclusivity and diversity advisor, educator, and public speaker. Now, one more line on the resume, uh, author of Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. It's in stores now. You can find it on Amazon.ca, wherever you buy books. Wherever you buy books, you will be able to find this book. So, you become uh, a, a cyclist, but you are you are uh, grappling with gender identity issues. Um, let's cut to that part of the story. It, it is a big step for anyone, even though you have felt uh, like a woman for your entire life, pretty much. It's it's a big step, or or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a relief, but uh, tell it, me, it, it absolutely is a big step. Um, I think for me at that time, um, it's it just to it just even come classifying yeah. as being a woman. Um, I just it's 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 not even it's 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 hard because in our society to find the, the right words for yeah. what this is. Yeah. And, and 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 this is this is why I'm so enjoying this this conversation with you is is that it's it's about feeling who you are. Right. Right. It's less about male and female because we all kind of find find ourselves within that gray zone. Right. There's not one common male or one common right. female. So, right, right. so it's it's allowing to be 
be you. Yeah. You know, and finding that place um, inside the box. I, you know, you have to go outside the box to get inside the <laughs> box. Right, it was this yeah. kind of a funny uh, place um, and, and a process to go through. It takes a great deal of time. And I think for me, um, just coming full circle in terms of my transition, um, I mean, I was I, I, I became married. Um, I, I, I became part of the Worley family, um, and I was embraced in a family that um, it was a Toronto uh, family, legal family, mm-hmm. um, and I had a f- uh, became Graham Worley became my who was my father-in-law became my father right um, through this whole thing, and um, unfortunately lost him ten years ago to a rare bone cancer that Jack Layton got two right. years later, yeah. sadly, and. Um, so um, it was a great loss for me because he was kind of the dad I always kind of hoped for. Uh, you know, it showed he was there. We ran marathons together. You know, we, 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 we sporting stories. But he was always there at an intellectual level for me and, and never wavered with me mm. in terms of who I was a person. He accepted who I was. You know, I never felt pressure to be something else. And, and That must have been a relief. Tremendous relief, and I think coming into the Whirly family through 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 Allison or through Allie, yeah. um, you know, there's I always say that Allie was that angel. I mean, that was that because at those times in those days, I, I mean, for me, suicide was an option because I, at those times I didn't have an out. Mm. And 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 for a lot of people who may not understand, you know, we, when you can get to those dark points in your life, suicide can be, you know, a, a comfort. I mean, that's where it came for me yes. um, because I didn't want to let my family down or humiliate my family, um, and, and I didn't want to feel great loss. So when I met the Worley family, I didn't, I, I didn't know what it meant to feel that level of love and openness and, and able to have conversations that are day-to-day things that most kids would f- talk about that are problems that most people, most kids would have. I didn't have that opportunity in my, in my adoptive family to, f- to have those experiences. So having issues of gender identity and, and so on, you you were just so locked up. And especially when going to the schools I went, there was no counseling services or there was no psychology support. Um, because back in those days, it was, I mean, they would, they would it was electric shock treatment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, it really, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and even even not so long ago, they were doing, they were trying to reset people's thinking and how they felt about their gender or sexuality. Mm-hmm. So as horrible as that is. Um, but that was a social conditioning of our society trying to get you to fit into that box, right? Because right? this is all circular into this conversation and, and how this all fits together. So it was the Worley family that helped me to really kind of help me open that up. And, and, and unbeknownst to them, you know, it allowed me to be Kristen and over, over, over uh, roughly a decade um, in which Allison and I had a, a marriage relationship for almost 18 years, in which she spent seven years with me, um, helping me through that transition. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you today, it's probably the best relationship we've ever had. I mean, today she is my stepsister. Yeah. And anybody in our family that knows of our situation acknowledges that. And, and that's how I'm always introduced in the family. So it's, it's, it, we, are, we are better friends now than we were then. That's an amazing story. That's an incredible story. We've got six minutes left to talk about what happens after that. So as part of your, uh, uh, your life now, testosterone injections, no. Am I, no, I'm wrong about that. Tell me now what, what the issue is with the IOC and what you went to court. Okay. 
So the issue is not about testosterone. No, it's not. And, and that's that. Yeah. But, but it's okay. Yeah. But I'm glad you actually said it because that's what's out in the media. Yeah. So it's important because, because that's what I've read. That's and that's where, read. that's where I, I pulled that up from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that's fine. Yeah. And the issue is, 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 is that that's where all this has gone wrong right. in, in the social, in the silo, in the social media sphere. Um, the issue was for me, I was the, the, I came back into sport five years after I had never, I broke my pelvis in a road accident before I transitioned. Right. It was during the time when Brian Stemmel, a dear friend of mine, had had that terrible fall in Kiss Pillow that you know, almost killed him three yeah. days after his fall. Um, Brian and I were dear friends and, and still are. And um, I was reflecting then that I didn't know if I would go back to the sport of cycling. Um, and I decided to go back to university because um, I delayed my university. Um, because of sport Mm -hmm. and with my focus of going to the Olympics and world championships and Olympics and cycling. Um, But then it was almost like somebody put the brakes on to me and said, you know, you got to stop by breaking my pelvis. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to go through this journey to get to the next point. So it was when, so I I went through my transition at that point, that, uh, that very personal experience over five and a half, six years. And then I was contacted by uh, a dear friend of mine by the name of, of Ross Outerbridge, who's an orthopedic surgeon out in Kamloops. He used to be head of world, the Medical Association director, director for World Water Skiing. Mm. And Ross contacted me about a young girl by the name of Michelle Dumarask out in, out in, out in Vancouver who was in, just got into downhill mountain biking back in 2002. And um, conversely, Ottawa and, and Sport Canada and Union Cycling International, which is the UCI in Europe, had taken away her license because she was assumed, um, uh, because she had transitioned, that she had a competitive advantage in sport. Right. So I was contacted privately behind the scenes to help with that narration, to help Michelle get back on the bike, because what they were conceivably saying was untrue, um, and that she was actually like 67th in the world. On, uh, but in Canada, she was out, out riding the girls because we hadn't had a strong program yet from downhill mountain biking, right. where we were even competitive at the world level. So I said to a lot of the girls, I said, be happy you've got somebody to chase to make you a better athlete <laughs> That's right. to improve the Canadian program. Let, let's look at the upside here. Right, yeah. so it's, it had nothing to do with Michelle, but they targeted it because of her, of, of her gender. Right. Transition. So from that, I realized there was a point where I needed to, to I, I decided, I thought there's more to this. And it's almost like a calling. I can really say it was a calling to where then um, I was thinking it through. And then the IOC came through based on Michelle's experience, a policy on, on gender just before the Athens uh, Olympics. And I was, I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to sport. And I, I was the first one that went through that policy process um, to which I was gender tested. Um, and it, it was horrible as all that was, realizing, um, just kind of shortening this a bit, that years later, because my body did not have any hormones, because I'd been through a full physical transition, so right. my body didn't, that's lost the ability to generate any hormone. So um, it, there, there has like multiple contraindications to the human physiology when that, when that occurs. So what had happened coming back to the IOC over the last several years is that I became unwell due to the policies that we now know, or we did know then as well, that there was no science and research to which I was gender tested and, and qualified for sport there as well as that the system that it was imposing itself on me was coming from a private organization in Switzerland. Mm coming in through the Olympic movement, through that association, Canada being one of those associations of the 206 nations, applying that within, within the, the laws of a, of a, of a, of a, of a country against, uh, against one of their 
a citizen, a, a citizen of, yeah. of that country. Yeah. Where would you do that in a medical community? There's right. or in a legal community. We have the law society. Yeah. We have the medical. <laughs> we have the we have these medical yeah, yeah. societies to protect individuals from that type of level. For some reason, the autonomy of sport is is the is the element that the IOC uses, and obviously, and and the 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 Canadian sporting system use. Uh, essentially, even, saying we make the rules and. If you don't like it, too bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when so when I started pushing buttons against the IOC, and I talked to the head, I had talks with Jacques Rogue, who right. used to be head of the IOC, and he, and I said to Jacques Rogue at one point in the conversation, I said, he like as he said to me, he goes, he goes, Kristen, I gave this off to Arnie Linquist yeah. and, and to Patrick Shrimash, who were the heads of the medical commission at the right. time. When I was talking to him in Lausanne, and he said, and I said, Doctor Rogue, you're wrong. This is not a medical problem. This is a social problem. Mm. So all these years later, we've been able to, I've been able to illustrate that because they never did the science and the research in the first place. And and and, and you go to and you go to court, and you win. I well, mean that's it's not a spoiler because yeah, people know, but so, you, and you won. Yeah. So the issue was it's really important and is is that I went to the issue was in, in Canada because I've met women all over the world who have been impacted from like over twenty four women from seven different nations and nine different sports that have been impacted by this and um, over the last two decades. And really what the issue is, is the, for, I decided at that point, my, my health was failing me so much. I decided, because this is what the, what the sporting system hopes for, the athlete will mm -hmm. not do something like this because you only have a window of eight to 10 years right. to compete. Right. So you're not gonna go to court. So that's why we have the court of arbitration where the IOC was trying to get me into court there saying it was a sport issue and I'm saying no this is a human rights issue yeah. they didn't understand until they came to Toronto under under the under civil law that they realized because we actually showed the science and the research which they knew that we already had for over a decade right. they just didn't want the public to know that this had been going on for for a very long time mm -hmm. against particularly against women it, it, listen this whole story is laid out uh, in a very fascinating way, in a book called Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport by Kristen Worley, who has been my guest today, co-written with Johanna Schneller. Uh, it's an incredible story. Uh, you tell it so well. Thank you so much for coming in. Richard, it's been an awesome opportunity to be being with you. Yeah, fabulous. A, Thank what, you. What a pleasure. Woman Enough, How a Boy Became a Woman and Changed the World of Sport. Uh, my thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Andre and the board, and we'll talk to you again next week.